You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. You're on 3CR Queering the Air. This program was produced on Wurundjeri land um, 
of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging, um, and acknowledge their unceded sovereignty. My name is Jacob. And I'm Iris, and the track you just heard was Triumph from Simona Castricum. Yes, and we've got a fantastic show coming up for you today. Um, Iris, do you want to tell us a bit about what's on the agenda? Yes, we do. Uh, you have a fabulous interview with the amazing Cerulean coming up. Um, and I have an interview with Alan from No Pride in Police, Mianjin, Brisbane. And lastly, we finish with an interview with Cody Smith from Intersex Human Rights Australia. So a bit of a packed show for you today, listeners. Yeah, a bit of a, a vibrant mix of, of different topics. Very exciting stuff. Um, well, let's hop into it, I suppose. So, uh, first up, we are chatting to Cerulean, who won the Missed First Nations um, Award, which is a, a drag competition for Indigenous drag queens. And you're tuned into the 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Last week, I had the pleasure of meeting Cerulean, a drag queen, a Pokemon enthusiast, and the winner of Miss First Nations 2021, a national competition for Indigenous drag performers. I feel like Cerulean's, I think it was a part of my name before I started doing drag, because my Instagram handle at the at that time was uh, Cerulean City Community, which, which is actually a reference to uh, Pokemon. We had a chat about where her drag career began, her experience competing in Miss First Nations, and creating spaces that were more inclusive for Indigenous and POC queer people and trans people. So tell us about her and how did you get started? Cerulean actually started when my drag mother, is what I call her, Stone Motherless Cold, kind of uh, approached me out of the blue and was like, would you like to be a part of this random event thing that I'm doing? I need some like First Nations queer performers. And I was like, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Cause I've, I've, it's, it's like drag spin on my mind. And this was in, what is it like 2018? No, 19. Yeah, 2019. Um, yeah, like, so she approached me and I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it because the drag's been on my mind for, for like, I think about a month at that point. Like, you know, just like in and out, like, should I do drag? Actually, I don't know, maybe not. Should I? So that was kind of like that clear indication of like, okay, cool, I'm just going to do this. So I went ahead and done it. It was actually a part of the um, North Kit Let's Take Over program that they do. Um, and it was actually really fun. Um, my first performance was in North Kit Town Hall in the big space and yeah, it was just so fun. I did a mix um, by Lizzo where I was like running around, like giving everybody moisturizer. Um, <laughs> I was just like, yeah, take care of yourself, besties. What Lizzo songs were you giving out moisturizer to? I'm curious to know what that- <laughs> It was, actually, you know what? It was the day after Because I Love You came out. Um, so like, if you know that song, I'm crying because I love you. It was it was that one. Um, and also Water Me, which is with the, where the moisturizer comes 
through because she was like, I moisturize myself daily. Um, it's all about like self-care. And I was like, okay, cute, let's do that. So I just got a bottle of moisturizer and I was running around in the crowd, like, you know, making sure people take care of themselves, you know? Um, but like from then on in, it was just kind of like, oh, I love this. I love this. So I, I really want to continue on because I'm pretty sure Stone would have seen me do like a Yaya's lip sync for my pint or something. It was like, cool. Okay, let, let's try Oscar. Um, and yeah, just from there, it kind of just grew. My second performance was at the NADOC Pride, Victorian Pride um, night, where actually Stone got um, crowned as Vic Pride 2019. And has been Vic Pride <laughs> up until now because we haven't been able to do another one. Um, and yeah, no, that was it. Was just really fun to be able to to perform, and like performance has always been like I guess a part of me. So it was really fun to bring it out and drag. The Miss First Nations competition has three components. The first component involves the performers preparing a national costume, and delivering a talent so national costume is when we'd kind of you know dress up in like you know i guess uh an outfit inspired by where we come from our identity as first nations people like we're all from different uh different places all around this country and like to really bring that to the stage cerulean's national costume was inspired by her torres strait islander heritage yeah, so I am um, Meriam and Erub Kebele from the islands of Meriam and Erub on the Torres Strait Islands up north. And um, we're like saltwater people. It's an island. We're surrounded by like, you know, fish and and beautiful, beautiful, um, yeah, just really beautiful blue and green scenery um, in the tropics, in the beautiful heat. So uh, what I wanted to do was really capture that in, in the colors that I was doing and in the waves that crash. So the way that I, um, that I made my belt was that I like hung like plaits, which kind of looked like, um, like the Zazis that we would wear, um, which are like traditional um, grass skirts. So they kind of hung out with like some feathers and that kind of symbolized like the waves. Um, Cause my grandfather's also an artist as well who makes these massive headdresses. And like, he's always taught me from young about like the symbolism of, of his artwork and how like, you know, the feathers and like, um, they would like flow out. It was kind of um, inspired by the way the shark moves in, in the water. Um, cause my totem where I come from is Bezom, which is the shark. Um, so the way that a well, hammerhead shark to be exact and just the way that the, the shark moves and stuff, I try to encapsulate that in this costume. The second component of the competition is a lip sync superstar where competitors were given a playlist of songs to learn one of which would be chosen at random on the night. You get up on stage and you perform whatever comes on. <laughs> and, and one of those songs was um, uh, Proud Mary. And we were all hoping that we were not going to get Proud Mary. <laughs> and it was such an iconic song. And I was like, no, no way. I did end up getting We, um, we Got Love by Jesse, uh, I was going to say Jesse J, Jessica Mowboy. The third component was the finale where competitors had full creative control to do any performance that they liked. 
So I did a performance to, um, it was like themed about working. Um, it had like a clip from like Jasmine Masters talking about work and then had like Work It by Missy Elliott, Work by um, Kelly Rowland and oh, I forget the other one. But yeah, it was like a fun mix where I was kind of cleaning the stage with like a rag and a spray bottle. It was really fun. <laughs> The Miss First Nations competition kept us all entertained during the Midsummer and Nuremberg festivals, with its amazing range of fabulous drag entertainers. It also gives an important platform for queer Indigenous people, as LGBTQIA venues and events are often catered towards white audiences. It's so important to have uh, things like Miss First Nations, um, yeah, because it really kind of gives us a space to be um, our true selves. Because, you know, um, as like First Nations people, as like, you know, people of colour, I feel like we're always code switching between like, I guess, how we are with family, with community um, and how we are in this white world that we live in. Um, and I feel like being in in this queer space as well, especially because I guess um, there's like a white way of being queer and then obviously you have your First Nations way of being and the way that that intersects is is really um, is really beautiful but it's also very particular and to have a space where that's kind of held and where you can kind of be your true your true self without trying to relate to a certain side like I feel like it's really beautiful to be your more of your true self in that space. Absolutely. And I think in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion and rightly so about how a lot of Melbourne's queer scene is really whitewashed um, and how it's very much catered to, to white audiences. What would you like to see more of in Melbourne's queer nightlife? I would love to see more diversity um, within within the nightlife. I'd love to see more um I guess not only First Nations performers, but POC performers. And I know that like, I guess it's a bit of a um, journey that we all have to go on to kind of build up these spaces and like, you know, make room for a lot of our, our performers to grow and move into um, a lot of that to do like with safe spaces as well, like specifically gay clubs, because like there aren't a lot of places out there that are even queer. In that space, like, you know, it's it's all created for, like, gay males when, like, you know, we have so much of our rainbow community that don't really get that visibility either within the scene. Um, I feel like there are a few places that um, have been, like, you know, uh, platforming more of, of those communities in, in, like, Rainbow House Club, for example. A lot of people are doing um, a lot more independent stuff yeah, and I also think that to, like, I guess decentralise drag as well, I feel like is a big thing. Like, I feel like everything is kind of uh, bubbling within, like, Smith Street, for example, maybe a bit down south. But I feel like I feel like you should be able to be queer wherever you are as well in those spaces around Melbourne. It's not just the one place. Like, I feel like there should be a night, even out, like, you know, in your rural spaces as well, like, like you know, piano bars kind of doing a lot of that stuff in the rural spaces. To be able to, I guess, bring bring that around, because, like, 
because I guess like I know a lot of my friends also live like out as well so it's like if you're coming in just for that one spot like it's it's really cute and fun but it, it's also a bit like it's not as accessible. Cerulean is also involved in an independent drag collective called Smash that showcases POC performers. Recently, in lockdown, they've hosted two virtual drag events. Ash is, is a group of, like, nine of us. It actually came um, through, through, like, I guess the need for a lot more POC performers, um, First Nations performers. So it was kind of like this group, um, part of the Motherless House as well, the Motherless House Collective, and we kind of, I guess group some other orphan drag artists as well. So there's like a group of us that, um, yeah, really, I guess it's kind of like we're trying to create a night to really platform like a lot of uh, pop talent. Cause like, you know, we don't really see a lot of that around. Um, and we've been doing some online stuff as well. We had something called Club Smash a few weeks ago. Club Smash actually comes from, all Smash comes from like Smash Brothers. Um, and that kind of game kind of vibe, which is where we started, uh, but it's kind of grown into this, this new beautiful thing. If you want to keep up to date with Cerulean, you can follow her on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook using the handle C-E-R-U-L-E-A-N-U-W-U. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us. Um, so that was a, a pre-recorded interview with the Miss First Nations title award holder, Cerulean. Um, and it was a very, very joyful occasion. Very much enjoyed chatting to her a couple of weeks ago. Um, and very much enjoy listening to the sound of my own voice on a, a Sunday afternoon. That's a joke. I, I actually don't. <laughs> um, so up next, we're going to play a... Uh, community service announcement and then Iris has a very exciting um, segment to play afterwards. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. And you're listening to Queering the Out on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, your radical radio here in Melbourne, Nam. I'm Iris, and I'm here in the studio with Jacob. And earlier today, I spoke to Alan from No Pride in Police Miage in Brisbane. It's Pride Month up there, and they have their Pride events on. And there's been a development in terms of a small win in terms of Police have been requested not to march in uniform in the Pride Parade, so I spoke to Alan about that and other things. So stay tuned to Queering the Air. 
I'm joined on 3CR Community Radio with Alan, who is involved in No Pride in Police in Miagin, Brisbane. And we're going to be talking about the struggle around Pride March and Liberation in Brisbane, Miagin, especially in the context of a small win regarding a request for Brisbane police not to march in uniform at the Pride March. But first, could you introduce yourself for listeners? Oh, thanks for having me, Iris. Um, my name is Ellen, and I am part of a collective called No Pride in Police. Um, that started back in sort of 2016, 2017, uh, protesting the involvement of Queensland Police Service marching in pride in their uniforms. Um, there's a lot of other d- different groups um, that I'm involved in and who've been involved in this um, struggle. And yeah, this year, uh, the Brisbane Pride Collective or Brisbane Pride Incorporated, um, who run the festival, have requested that the police not march in uniform, as you said, which was not um, necessarily a result of, of our insistent asking them over the years. We've sent a lot of um, open letters requesting they do that, but over um, a controversy around some Facebook, secret Facebook police groups and the activity in there. Mm, interesting. Before we go more into that, uh, how did you become involved in that collective? So I think the police were first invited to march in uniform um, in, I believe, 2015. And in that year, um, a queer group at university that I was involved in sent an open letter, um, you know, condemning that decision. And me and a few different other sort of radical queers the next year decided that uh, we needed to keep up that pressure and something needed to be done about it. Uh, So there were banners that were held at the start of the um, march where the march finishes and they go into the fair day. It's like a paid fair day event. Uh, And we did a lot of postering. Awesome. Yeah, that's interesting Um, because towards the end of September, following what you said around you already sort of preempted this question a bit, but in terms of Brisbane Pride requesting Queensland police not to march in uniform at Pride, which is happening later in October, I believe. Why did this decision come about? You're suggesting that it wasn't necessarily, it had a lot to do with other factors other than what you've already been doing in terms of the media. And I've seen media around Brisbane and Queensland Police's Facebook groups. Is that something to do with it? Yeah. So Queensland Police, where a lot of members were involved in some secret Facebook group that was uh, the contents of which were leaked and there was a lot of homophobic, uh, sexist and racist comments being made, um, a lot of just, you know, general police bigotry and some of these posts and comments were made public. Um, and I don't believe that QPS uh, gave an apology. So my understanding is that Brisbane Pride Festival asked the Queensland Police Service to make an apology for it and also to have an, make an apology for previous homophobic violence. Um, so the Queensland Parliament has apologised for, you know, everybody who was criminalised for sodomy and that kind of thing um, before those things were decriminalised. Queensland Police Service has never formally apologised uh, and they declined Brisbane Pride's festival's um, request for an apology. And so in response, Brisbane Pride Festival um requested they not participate in uniform. Mm, I see. So it's kind of the police's doing, like not keeping quiet 
the blatant oppression in the police, not that it isn't quiet for most people who know who are on the ends of police violence at all, but in terms of it hitting the media and it being like a PR problem or something. Yeah, it massively. It's just like, a. It, it's. I mean, it's not surprising to me and I don't think it should be surprising to anybody that the police have these sort of secret Facebook groups and they make these sort of comments in them. Um, and I, I do, obviously I support the decision by Brisbane Pride Festival and I'm, I think it's the right decision, but it's also shocking to me that it's been made over some Facebook comments and not, for instance, the um, death of an Indigenous woman who happened, you know, right here in the Brisbane Watch House in the CBD in September last year. Her name was Shelley Tilbaru, or plenty of other things that have happened that QPS has been involved in. Yeah, for sure. There is a lot of contradictions and stuff embedded in that in terms of what matters to, like, what affects the PR of a corporation and what isn't seen as worthy of of that one of the demands of no pride in police's statement on a decision around brisbane pride um and in relation to the the request for police not to march in uniform is for a decommodified and decorporatized pride what would that look like for you yeah, so that's been um, a common theme as well. No Pride in Police um, doesn't just want no police. We also want yeah, a return to the radical roots of Pride. Currently, Pride Incorporated in Brisbane, um, the Pride that we have is, is quite corporatised. There are a few um, large grocery chain conglomerates that do a lot of the sponsoring. There's a lot of... Um, banks that do a lot of the sponsoring and it's really difficult to even take a photo of the march or the the speakers at the beginning of the march without seeing those huge logos backing it um, and everything else. So we would really like to see um, that gone, essentially. I don't think we need those sponsors. I'm okay with the event, you know, perhaps not being as showy and fancy and well-funded if it's done by the community for the community and not, um, you know, also just being a PR stunt, as we said, for these different corporations. I mean, these corporations are not um, necessarily queer friendly or or supporting queer liberation just because they, you know, stick a rainbow flag on it. Uh, We don't want rainbow capitalism and, um, yeah, we just don't want any of them in our pride. Yeah, for sure. It sounds very similar to here in Melbourne um, and in other places around it largely being like a corporate affair in terms of that's the atmosphere of it. Um, But at the same time, there is like contradictions in it and lots of community involvement. So I'm also thinking about how does this decision, how does it relate to social movements in Brisbane and Mianjin? Because I know you mentioned... um, one black death in custody before, but how does this, what's the context for this? Um, the context is there's a lot of groups that feel this way. Um, Queer Anti-Capitalist Action Block um, is also a group that I have been involved in and they um, did a sort of uh, protest performance, I guess, back uh, a few years ago in 2019 in the Pride. Um, as a block, they all dressed in black um, and we had like a huge uh, coffin, cardboard coffin, and it was like we were mourning the death of pride and radical pride, and we stopped the march um, 
to to speak about that and to hold silence for people who had experienced police violence. Um, but also we were mourning the death of it because of commodification and corporatization. Um, there's quite a good like there's quite a lot more leftist activity in Brisbane than I think people would expect. Um, last year, with the Refugee Solidarity Mianjin doing a sort of almost two months long occupation in Kangaroo Point around um, men being held in indefinite detention in obviously horrible circumstances, um, I think that really brought together a lot of the different factions of Brisbane left um, and really made people feel a lot more confident in their organising skills. Um, and it's been really great to see. Yeah, it sounds really good because like one of the things when I've been involved in actions around pride it's painfully obvious that like it is like a flashpoint but it's only like a one time of year thing and in many ways like the organizing has to be beyond pride and like things throughout the year so do you have any thoughts on that and any challenges around organizing around this no absolutely and there does need to be year-long um organising around this issue. There's a lot of, I guess, a lot of the queer events that happen throughout the year are obviously quite party-based, but some of them now are a bit more sort of radical. Uh, We have had House of Alexander, uh, which are a queer and trans and drag house who hold a lot of great events. Um, They co-signed this statement. We also have Shandy, which is a queer party, that happens every month. They've co-signed this statement. Um, so QACAB, the Queer Anti-Capitalist Action Block, they do do stuff year-round. And at one point, we're interested in sort of adopting a similar strategy to Pride and Protest in Eora or Sydney uh, in terms of trying to be more involved in Pride Incorporated as a body and sort of um, doing that sort of longer campaign work to potentially you know, join the AGM and get people elected and that kind of thing. Um, we also have, I guess, similar to Queering the Air, there's 4ZZZ, uh, 102.1 FM. They do radical stuff all year round. Um, but there's definitely space for more of it, I think. And the number of people who wanted to co-sign this statement, I think, just shows how much of an appetite there is for um, more radical queer liberation work. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for giving an overview of that landscape there um sort of like going further with that what so what what more solidarity would you like to see oh that's a good question um i'd love for us to go back to holding alternative pride events um in 2017 i think it was that we had people's pride um and that was a real success huge effort to pull off by a lot of different people and a lot of different groups um but i'd love to see see that happen again um i think all the queers and all the queer groups all these more obviously on the far left um do do a pretty good job of solidarity in terms of showing up for a lot of different first nations causes uh whether that's going up to gimpy for the jackie kundu stuff or with there's a few other um occupations that are occurring um or i mean we had disrupt land forces here recently um, and a lot of the people who were arrested um, and brutalised in that, which was against a weapons expo, an international weapons trade, um, are also involved in things like No Pride in Police. 
Um, and then, of course, the big one would probably be Refugee Solidarity Mianjin, um, which has been doing really great work around the refugees, not just who are currently detained, but also who have been recently released uh, without access to Centrelink and without rights to work, um, and organising to get them housed and, and fed. Cool. Thanks for that. So do you have any final thoughts or shout-outs or anything else you'd like to speak about? I'd like to say thank you for having me on air. And I will really am loving the solidarity between all the different cities on the East Coast. Um, there's a real appetite on the radical queer left to reclaim pride and to get the cops out um, and reclaim it for ourselves. And it's great that we can share between each other what, what's going on in our different places and, and how that fight looks. Um, obviously, for us here in Queensland, the biggest thing at the moment is also the decriminalisation of, of sex work. Um, and, of course, black deaths in custody continues to be an issue. Um, and hopefully, hopefully we are going to continue to make wins. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Alan, for joining me on Queering the Earth, ACR Community Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Iris. And you're tuned into Queering the Earth, as you just heard, 3CR 855 AM, your radical radio, on digital radio and streaming on, on demand as well. I'm Iris, here in the studio with Jacob, and you were just listening to Alan from No Pride in Police, Mianjin, Brisbane. Definitely check out their social media. It'd be cool to see what else they get up to particularly towards the end of the month, and the Pride March and Festival is on there. Check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, thanks for sharing that one, Iris. I think it was a really important um, and thoughtful piece, and I think it, it's really... I love the idea of being able to reclaim Pride as something for everyone, um, and I think it is um, so important that, you know, police who have traditionally been the oppressors um, are not included in that. Mm, yeah, for sure. And yeah, I was also telling Jacob that this show has its origins in a sort of like action and pride in Melbourne, just a little like holding up a banner around the problems with police and pride and like handing out flyers like nine years ago or something like that. Well, strong, strong history of um, anti-police pride. Um, we love to see it and we're carrying that legacy on today, which is great. Um, and Iris, a question for your Sunday afternoon. What does what does pride mean to you? Mm, I think it's like a complicated question because there's a lot that like there's a lot I'm like don't believe in and would don't have pride in. Like a lot of the pride stuff is contradictory, as like listeners would have heard about there and like, I also think about this activist group in like San Francisco that's called Gay Shame and it's like pointing out how like there's pride in all these things that are just completely contradictory and in no way compatible with like queer liberation or anything so with pride I often like think about shame at the same time as sh- like in terms of all these contradictory things going on um and I guess, like, there's pride in an identity sense, being pride in aspects of your identity, but also pride is also bound up in oppression in terms of, like, white nationalist pride that's mm. messed up. So, it's like, there's a lot to unpack there. So much to unpack. Um, couldn't agree more. 
I think for me, pride, pride is like a performance because for me, queerness is a performance. Um, and I, I loved your point before about how it's got all these contradictions um, and shame. And I think um, freeing ourselves from the shackles of shame is, is a major part of pride for me and not having to choose between the binary of men or women um, and just feeling free to live as our authentic selves. Um, and I think personally, these past few months have been quite challenging because I have felt quite disconnected um, from the LGBTQIA plus community with the COVID lockdowns and things. Uh, how has that affected you, Iris? Mm, yeah, it has been like a time that's gone past. I wouldn't be able to tell you a lot of things I've done because a lot of time it's just like getting through things. It hasn't been mm. the best time for like medical stuff unrelated to COVID for me either. Um, but yeah, I think it's mixed feelings. I both really like these stay-at-home orders can be really um, full-on and cut you off from like in-person hangouts for like, you know, like a understandable reason to reduce transmission contact to contact. At the same time, there's like like increased police powers. There's all sorts of like elements of social control sometimes the state uses with these measures at the same time as like like lots of incompetence in terms of the management of the pandemic and just hearing about more cases in um, children's prisons today. Why are there, why are there people being locked up that are young adults, etc. Hmm. And more cases in um in the refugee prison, the Park Hotel here in Melbourne as well. It's just like uh, it's just like a massive um yeah, it's just so much state mismanagement of this and it's contradictory because it, like, even as things open up like that's going to be felt unevenly a lot of people will still be at home mm. taking have to take precautions because there's mass transmission now definitely get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated because that's like the main form of protection now as things open up in the state sort of and really like the state should like be doing more in terms of ventilation and precaution like precautionary restriction stuff because yeah like it's like other places overseas um when they've opened up they need to be like a vaccine plus strategy because that's because it's so infectious certainly i i think it's going to be a really challenging time um, and while I do look forward to, to opening up and, and seeing people again, I think that there's some really valuable lessons from the pandemic about making sure we look after people who are immunocompromised or for other reasons will be dis disproportionately affected um, by the pandemic. So I totally agree. There's been a lot of mismanagement by the state um, and particularly um, by New South Wales, not to point fingers or anything, um, but th there's a lot of work to do and I think we could be doing a lot better. Um, cool. So I think now we're going to go to a quick uh, community service announcement and we'll be right back with another interview for you. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 
20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to 3CR. You're on Queering the Air. Um, my name's Jacob and we're joined by Iris today in the studio. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday afternoon. Uh, next up, we've got an interview that was recorded on Monday from Intersex Human Rights Australia. Um, so I spoke to Cody Smith, who is the senior project officer there, um, about some of the proposed changes to Victorian laws that have been put forward in an initiative called I Am Equal. Um, and the Victorian government is pushing for some new changes, which is fantastic to see. And probably one of the, the main ones is the prohibition of medical intervention without consent, um, which is a, a major issue that intersex people um, and intersex human rights Australia have been campaigning for for quite some time. So um, here is the interview. So, Cody, welcome to the program. Pleased to be here. How are you today? I am going well. How are you, Cody? Ah, oh, Chip, a little bit early for me, but that's okay. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Uh, so, for our audiences that aren't familiar, could you briefly describe what intersex means? So, the definition that we use at Intersex Human Rights Australia uh, is intersex people have innate sex characteristics that don't fit medical and social norms for female or male bodies. And that creates risks or experiences of stigma, discrimination and harm. One of the most important things you need to understand about intersex is that it's an umbrella term that talks about 40 different um, like um, diagnoses which represent um, sort of natural bodily diversity. And so when we're talking about intersex people as a population, intersex people have very little in common, but we have a lot of... Um, common experiences. So it's those experiences of stigma and discrimination and harm that intersex activism seeks to address. I see. And what kinds of um, medical interventions are intersex people subjected to? So because we're talking about sex characteristics, we're talking about medical interventions that affect sex characteristics. So people may be born with uh, ambiguous genitalia uh, or um, genit uh, genitals that have um, characteristics that are different from what people normally expect. And so there's a lot of corrective surgery that can happen to that, which causes nerve damage and um, harm and like, long-term uh, uh, medical problems. Another common thing is um, a, a procedure called a gonadectomy. So uh, there's a fear that when someone has um, atypical gonads, that they represent uh, a substantial cancer risk where this isn't actually de uh, demonstrated or proven. Uh, the thing is that when you remove um, gonads with a gonadectomy, uh, you're not only coercively sterilizing um, a person and removing any possibility that they'll be able to have children in the future, 
but um, you'll also uh, end up forcing them onto hormone replacement therapy for the rest of their lives. So we're talking about uh, things that have very, very significant consequences uh, throughout the rest of your life. And the upshot of that is that uh, we think that intersex people should be in control of their destiny. They should be the ones who make the call as to whether or not they uh, want or need these surgeries. I couldn't agree more. And and you mentioned a lot about some of the physical uh, consequences of those interventions, but I can imagine that they would also cause a lot of mental trauma too throughout an intersex person's life. Yeah, well, um, because we're talking about populations that are, uh, you know, for each diagnosis, you may be one in a thousand or one in two thousand or one in a few hundred. When you take into consideration the full breadth of intersex definition, we tend to think of it in terms of about being one to two percent of the population. But we're talking about quite rare medical cases that get treated with a lot of medical curiosity. So there's also a history there of being photographed and being exposed to doctors and um, that that's all these sorts of experiences uh, can be quite traumatic, especially if you're going in and out of hospital as a young kid. It makes it hard to complete your schooling. Um, a lot of um, it, uh, some intersex people experience um, a lot of um, difficulties at, uh, with bullying at school because um, they don't develop it in the same way that their peers do. So we're talking about uh, like a very, very broad range of um, like um, difficult experiences, and ultimately, what uh, what the goal of the movement is is to reduce harm. Mm, of course, and um, I know that recently in July, the, the Victorian government released their "I Am Equal" vision, um, which is their commitment uh, for improving the lives of, of intersex people. And I think it's something that's been quite underreported. Um, and I know that Intersex Human Rights Australia have been campaigning for this for a while. So do you want to tell us a bit about um, the campaign that has gone into changing these laws, not only in Victoria, but also across Australia? So uh, Intersex Human Rights Australia first started out as Organisation Intersex International Australia, or OII Australia. Um, I believe they first incorporated in 2010. But the intersex rights movement uh, largely goes back uh, to the 1990s. So in 1993, uh, uh, ISNA was um, founded. I can't quite remember what ISNA stands for. I think it's the Intersex Society of North America. Mm. And um, coming up later on this month, on October 26th, is Intersex Awareness Day, which takes place uh, on the anniversary of the protests of a pediatrics conference in Boston. So the movement has its roots um, in the 90s. But in Australia, I guess, uh, goes back to that uh, founding of OII Australia, um, which eventually turned to ERA uh, in 2010. Um, so it's a little bit of a hit. In terms of... Um, so the fact that, you know, this sort of campaigning has been happening for 11 years and we still don't have a jurisdiction in Australia that has produced legislation uh, to protect intersex people uh, really is a striking indictment of sort of like... Um, this whole idea that um, um, that we've, we've got this uh, huge forward momentum on LGBTIQ politics, because whereas we've made really good progress on some issues, uh, intersex issues tend to get sidelined and misunderstood and misrepresented and ignored, uh, which is really unfortunate. So 
get, getting that commitment to action uh, from the Victorian government uh, is really, really promising. We've had um, a lot of good process in the ACT and Tasmania as well. Um, but the the upshot of it is that um, we need uh, nationally consistent guidelines to ensure that uh, no matter where you're born in Australia, if you're born intersex, that your your right to bodily autonomy is protected until you can make your own decisions. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of the time people tend to understand the other components of the, the LGBT acronym, like lesbian, gay, bi, and, and intersex seems to always mm-hmm. be one that's sidelined. Um, so it is mm-hmm. it is promising that the uh, the Victorian government is doing something about this. Um, but I think, as you said before, it, it should be um, nationally consistent. Um, so do you want to tell us a bit about what the, the Victorian government sets out to achieve and, and how that aligns with um, the outcomes that you hope for? Mm. Uh, I think that... So when we talk about prohibition, um, I, I think that people tend to get a little bit nervous um, as though we're trying to take options away from people. And what we're actually uh, focused on is this idea of harm reduction, of um, um, putting... Uh, uh, giving people the opportunity to make the, uh, the best possible decisions for themselves. Um, so the the sorts of legislative models that we're looking at uh, aren't, aren't trying to take rights away from anyone, but are instead focused on how we can delay um, procedures, uh, how we can um, sort of... Um, uh, how we can prevent um, unevidenced procedures from happening and uh, basically providing a mechanism to ensure that where procedures do take place, that there are uh, records, that it's, um, that um, that everything about the circumstances are understood um, uh, fairly so that if... if um, if it becomes understood that this was um, violence uh, later on down the line, that there's potentially um, recourse for the individual who's been harmed. So we're very, very focused on harm reduction. Um, and while it's very, very hard to get into the specifics, um, one of the models we're looking at uh, is, is basically a mechanism where there's um, oversight on intersex procedures. So uh, that oversight would be would provide protection. Mm, I see. Um, and so we've we've talked a bit about harm reduction. Can you tell us, I'm sure there's, there's plenty of these, can you tell us a bit about some of the other changes that Intersex Human Rights Australia is campaigning for to ensure that there's equality for all intersex people? So a few years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a summit of intersex people from right across Australia, all different organisations, all different backgrounds, all different diagnoses. And we came together in Darlington, Sydney, to uh, like explore what those common experiences were, uh, how we've been harmed uh, and discriminated against on the basis of being born intersex. And we came up with a list of goals for the mo- movement, and that became known as the Darlington Statement. So the Darlington Statement can be found on darlington.org.au forward slash statement. And that is really sort of your deep dive into all the intersex issues that we face. So I think one of the things is that we really put forward this idea that um, 
intersex activism is very, very focused on medical violence, but it's also about rights in the workplace. It's um, about rights in education. Like, if you think about, um, you know, when boys and girls learn about their bodies uh, at age 12, a lot of intersex people don't find out they're intersex until much later on in life. And um, there shouldn't be anything so complicated or shameful about being born intersex that we shouldn't be teaching intersex children about their own bodies in the same environment. And in fact, if we start sort of like... um, uh, having these conversations earlier on in life, then what we're doing is we're promoting understanding of bodily diversity and we're creating a culture that is kinder to intersex bodies. So uh, education is a big one for us. Uh, genetic discrimination is a substantial issue. Um, <clears throat> as we sort of get these sort of reproductive technologies that are very, very uh, focused on genetic screening and genetic selection, what we find is, unfortunately, that there are a lot of intersex traits that are selected against. And there's nothing that should stop an intersex person from living a happy, healthy life. Like I said, we're talking about bodily difference. We're not talking about illness. We're not talking about disease. We're not talking about... um, Uh, anything other than like a perfectly healthy body that's just a little bit different from what people expect. So to select against that, um, you know, it is a form of discrimination in itself. Um, The idea of intersex people not even being given the chance to live is quite a distressing one. Mm, Absolutely. All such important causes. And I think um, your point there about just normalizing it from a young age is, um, is so important. Um, well, thank you so much, Cody, for joining us today. Where can we uh, sorry, find and support Intersex Human Rights Australia? So Intersex Human Rights Australia has its own website, uh, ihra.org.au. You'll find a, a whole bunch of um, resources on there about um, various different aspects of um, what it means to live as an intersex person in Australia. I've also mentioned the Darlington uh, statement. The Darlington Statement is a really good starting point for anyone who's interested in becoming an ally to the intersex community, because not only does it give you that base, baseline 101 on intersex issues, but it gives you an opportunity to ascend the statement uh, as a human rights ally and um, sort of like use your name to support our cause. So uh, darlington.org.au forward slash statement and era.org.au if you want to learn more. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cody. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully we've all learned something about intersex today. Yes, I'm sure. Um, So that was Cody Smith there from Intersex Human Rights Australia. They are the Senior Project Officer. Welcome back. You're on Queering the Air on 3CR Radical Radio. And that's all we have time for today. You can listen to us online at 3cr.org.au and search Queerings Yeah for our podcast. And up next we have Salam Radio Show. Stay tuned for that on 3CR. And I'm Iris and I've been here in the studio with Jacob. See you next time. I'm going out with Papaphilia, all our all syllables of the great tongue, off her new track, Remembrance of Things to Come. That's coming out tomorrow. I'm
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.